Welcome to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm Kimberly Winston, sitting in this week for Umbreen Khan. When I was in journalism school, I had a wonderful professor who was fresh off the religion beat at the New York Times. And he used to tell us every story is a religion story if you know how to look for it. I thought he was crazy. But once I joined the religion beat, I realized he was right. This week, we highlight the religion angle under some of the biggest headlines of the last few months. We'll look at the hidden religion stories behind the January 6th congressional hearings and the investigation into Native American boarding schools with the journalists who covered them. Then we'll look at the challenges and opportunities facing a small group of believers often overlooked by the media who may be staging a comeback. My first guest is Steve Raby, a freelance religion reporter who often writes about evangelicals and conservative Christians. For at least the last 18 months, Steve has been tracking down the link between Christian pro-family groups and Republicans who support and promote the false and misleading claims that the 2020 election was stolen. Most of these groups enjoy the tax-exempt status of churches or other houses of worship, though they are not linked to individual denominations or congregations. And that should prevent them from politicking, campaigning for specific candidates. That's an IRS no-no if you're a tax-exempt church. But, as Steve told me, these groups often operate with impunity and pour millions of dollars into political causes. I reached Steve at his home at the base of the Rocky Mountains. This is Steve Raby. I am a freelance writer doing books and articles, and I'm calling from Colorado Springs, where God lives. <laughs> That's right. Now, now tell our listeners why you say where God lives. Uh, Colorado Springs, for decades, has been a hub of evangelical parachurch organizations. Uh, everybody from Focus on the Family, Compassion, International, Young Life. So there's just a lot of groups here. People have called it the Evangelical Vatican here in Colorado Springs, but that's that's a problematic description on a number of levels, too. But there's a lot of groups here. And you just said a word that's sort of fallen out of use, but tell our listeners, what is a parachurch organization? Excellent question. Parachurch organizations are designed to do specific activities or missions that complete some of the part of the mission of the church, but they are organized as nonprofits, usually 501c3 nonprofits recognized by the IRS for tax-free purposes. But that would include, well, like, for example, some of the groups here in Colorado Springs, uh, Compassion International. Their mission is to help children around the world and also their mothers and Sure, churches do that, maybe through their mission programs, but Compassion made that their specific objective, and they're now a $1 billion a year organization that does that. Same with Young Life. Churches have youth groups, but Young Life is a parachurch organization created to do youth ministry around the world. And Focus on the Family is a slightly different parachurch organization because it first kind of elevated parents and families as what we need to be focused on, but increasingly they've emphasized politics as a way to save the family from uh, doom and gloom. So, yeah, but there's 
thousands and thousands of parachurch organizations. A lot of people say they play a bigger role in people's spiritual lives than churches do because they have better radio shows and greater coverage. And that's an important thing to point out is that these parachurch organizations are very present in media. They have their own radio stations, their own television shows. They have, you know, a huge presence on social media. Book publishing, movies. Yeah, they're, they're a lot about communication. Produced. Yeah, they're like a lot of parachurch ministries are like publishers. But then yes. there's others like Prison Fellowship. They're, they're actually training people to go to prisons and things like that. So it covers the, the whole perspective. Right. You've been writing a lot about parachurch organizations, especially pro-family parachurch yeah. organizations, the Family Research Council, or Focus on the Family. What are their definitions of family, and what does it mean to, for them to be pro-family? Like, is anybody anti-family? So I'm wondering what they mean by that. Well, you know, according to the pro-family groups, there are a lot of people who are allegedly anti-family and mm. a lot of legislation that is anti-family. I think initially a lot of them were trying to just push back against the sexual revolution. But over the decades, we've seen pro-family organizations have decided that homosexuality is a threat to the biblical Christian family. Lately, they've been going after transgender rights. Uh, you see a lot of talk on pro-family media about how they are protecting women's sports uh, mm. from transgender athletes. It seems like a lot of sex-related issues are part of the family. Uh, recently, Focus has gone over critical after critical race theory. They're all over the place on some issues, but they share a concern that the family is God's number one priority. That secular America is destroying the family, and we basically need to use politics to protect it and make sure it doesn't disappear. Tell me a little bit about, let's say, the four main pro-family groups that have been promoting either specific candidates or specific legislation. We can talk about four groups and stay within the focus on the family, family, if you will. Focus was founded in 1977. By 1981, Dobson and other uh, conservative leaders had founded the Family Research Council, which originally started out as part of Focus, but is now independent. It's also a 501c3, but the Family Research Council also has FRC Action, which is a 501, I think, C4, a political group which works in D.C. with Congress and the presidential administration. Dobson realized they needed a state-based organization, a network of state groups. So in the 80s, they created what they called the Family Policy Council. And you can see now there's maybe three dozen state organizations around the country that network with the Family Policy Council. And then in 94, Dobson and other leaders helped create the Alliance Defending Freedom. That's mm. their legal group. And so, for example, if you remember the Supreme Court case about the baker, the Supreme Court granted him his freedom not to sell cakes to gay partners getting married. Right. That case was uh, fought by the Alliance Defending Freedom. A lot of people don't talk about focus that much. And I think Dobson, he's 87 now and is not quite as active as he used to be. But all these organizations he created uh, are part of what I call like a 250 million annual 
uh, budget for groups to promote family things, but increasingly they pro- promote conservative politics, uh, Republican politics, and a lot of them seem to love Donald Trump. And you just said they have how much of a budget? When you add up Focus and all the other you know, the other groups they created, there's about $200 million there. But Focus only spends about 20% of its budget on advocacy, and that is allowed under IRS regulations. Uh, IRS regulations also say 501c3 nonprofits should not be partisan, but uh, IRS does not enforce that. And as we know, IRS is understaffed under budget, so uh, it, it just doesn't pursue some of these things. But a lot of these groups that say they are nonpartisan, that's kind of a joke. So tell me, because you know these groups inside and out and what they're active in, where have you seen their fingerprints? in the January 6th hearings? Well, maybe we should start with Josh Hawley. You know, when Hawley entered the Capitol on January 6th, 2020, he gave that fist bump to some of the protesters. Parenthetically, his campaign later sold a mug with the image of that fist bump, and they claimed the mug was suitable for liberal tears. But then once the attack happened, Hawley was, they had video of him just running. Focus on the family loves Josh Hawley. In fact, I predict, you heard it, heard it here first, a Pence Holly ticket. Really? Yeah, that's just what I'm predicting. I could be totally goofed up, but anyway, that's what I'm thinking. Wow, okay. But after the January 6th attack on the Capitol, I think within a month, Focus had Josh Hawley on their radio show, and that was a show about cancel culture, which of course they were identifying as a leftist tendency, but I just thought it was rather rich that the guy who tried to cancel the vote for Pennsylvania, he was the first U.S. senator to say he was going to question votes from the states. Focus-related groups have endorsed Ron Johnson, who was involved in putting out a false uh, group of electors for Wisconsin. Uh, Andy Biggs in Arizona called Rusty Bauer, who was the Speaker of Arizona's House, trying to get uh, the, the Arizona House to overturn the vote. So he did that. Mo Brooks was the guy on January 6th who says time to kick ass and take names or vice versa. He's been endorsed by them. Paul Gosar from Arizona, who speaks a lot of alt-right and white racist groups. He, they love him. Lauren Boebert of Colorado, they did an article, focused an article uh, saying she's living the American dream. And there's actually a, a family policy endorsed guy from West Virginia who broke into the Capitol on January 6th. Focuses and their political groups, they've endorsed political candidates and they've largely endorsed the Republican Party. And they haven't really pushed back at the excesses that we've seen uh, in the Republican Party in the last 18 months or so. If these organizations are um, classified as religious organizations and therefore are tax exempt, We've said the IRS is overburdened, overworked. The IRS has not pursued uh, violations of that. But how else do these folks, do these groups get away with being tax exempt because they're religious organizations and doing this kind of politicking, supporting these candidates, promoting things that are part of the Republican platform? Well, there's a couple things. The IRS says 
a 501c3 nonprofit organization cannot endorse a candidate, but uh, they can address issues. So if the issue is abortion, then you can talk about the abortion issue and you're allowed to identify politicians who uh, support your view on that. Uh, that's what they did with Donald Trump in the run-up to the 2020 election. Uh, both Jim Daly, who's the current CEO focused, and Jim Dobson, who left to create his own separate group, they both have called uh, Donald Trump the most pro-life president of their lifetime. And, you know, it, that paid off with the Supreme Court appointments that recently uh, reversed Roe and Wade. So you're allowed to talk about issues. You're not supposed to talk about candidates. They do it anyway, and nobody calls them on it. There are seven Republican Congress people who have refused to address the January 6th committee. They've re- some have refused subpoenas, some have refused to testify. Those are all endorsed by the pro-family groups. So it just it just goes kind of on and on. Can you explain to me what is the thinking? of Christian conservatives that even though, I mean, I believe these people really believe in Christian faith, yes. Christian faith that I, I, I totally, I don't doubt their sincerity, Yeah, but I don't understand the thinking behind believing the things that Jesus said then allows you to vote for a candidate who is antithetical to many of the things that Jesus said. I've heard it explained as a trade-off. Well, if we hold our noses and vote for Donald Trump, we're going to get the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Can you explain this to me? Kimberly, you're a smart person, and if you haven't understood this yet, I'm not confident in my ability to help you understand (laughs) it, but I will give it a try. My best effort to explain this comes down to one word, fear. Mm. If you look at pro-family media, you see that the world is just in a horrible shape and getting mm. worse every 15 seconds. They see Christianity is under threat, at least their form of Christianity. Uh, and that's why they feel they need to respond. One of Dobson's recurring phrases over the last few decades is, you know, Congress j- just did this and now everything I've ever believed in is being turned upside down or stripped mm. away or something. So I think there's a lot of fear And in fact, Trump's appeal to Christian conservatives was, I will make you strong. I will protect you. I will protect your religious freedoms. And I think in a lot of ways he did that. Do you get a sense of how many people in these groups or or who pay attention to what they say, are any of them paying attention to the hearings? Uh, Short answer, no. Mm. Uh, Focus has a political website called the daily citizen. Yes. That's their news site for Christians. And they say it's biblical news. I haven't seen a single report on there about the January six hearings. And I know that on the very first day, the hearings began, you know, a month ago on that day, Jim Daly focus hosted Mike Pence on his radio show. I forget what the topic was, but they did not mention the hearings or Trump's role in the insurrection. So if the IRS isn't paying attention to these pro-family groups, and if the pro-family groups and their listeners' constituents are not 
paying attention to the January 6 hearings, will there be any repercussions for these groups for their participation in promoting the lie that the 2020 election was stolen? Uh, I don't predict that, no. Christian parachurch organizations with media presences, they can just revise the website. They can delete the the things that used to be on there. So I don't think there's going to be a lot of pushback. I think a lot of Christian pro-family groups, they maybe think more in terms of Christendom than they think of Jesus. You know, mm. there's this Christendom thing, it's threatened. And if that requires us to act in ways that Jesus did not endorse or, or actually prohibited, uh, we'll pray for forgiveness because he certainly understands that Christendom is threatened. So I think that's the approach they're taking. So you made a prediction. You said you think you're going to see a ticket that is Mike Pence and Josh Hawley. Tell me why. I just think that would be, I think the pro-family groups would love that. Uh, You know, Mike Pence has been a devoted friend of Focus on the Family. Uh, And, you know, Mike Pence's family, they grew up on Focus on the Family materials for their kids, videos and radio programs. So there's that. And also Focus just really likes Josh Hawley. I just think they see him as maybe the younger uh, representative of the movement. What role do you expect these pro-family groups to play in the midterms? How will we see their fingerprints in the uh, in the lead up to the midterms and in uh, the 2024 election? There'll be endorsements of candidates. Uh, also, elections are a time to turn hot button culture war issues and to get out the vote efforts. Mm -hmm. So I think this year you're going to see that around the abortion issue. And you might say, hey, they just, you know, the pro-family groups just won on the abortion issue. Uh, Why are we going to be hearing about that? Well, they're pushing for stricter uh, restrictions in the states. So I think we'll see that. I also think we'll see uh, issues brought up about the transgender sports about how transgender athletes threaten heterosexual athletes and those kind of things. That's another issue. I suspect you'll also see critical race theory uh, maybe coming up again. But one of the things we talked that we saw in the, some of the primaries is this kind of parents' rights situation where the parents are upset about school curriculum or, or things like that. So I, I think there will be some parental school issues involved too. Are they coming for LGBTQ rights that have advanced through the Supreme Court in the last five, ten years? Well, I would say yes. The gay rights thing has been on their list for a long, long time. Uh, You know, Dobson was behind Amendment 2 here in Colorado, you know, two decades ago, which which won in the state, but then was overturned by the Supreme Court. No, so that's definitely on their agenda. All right. Well, if Pence and Hawley decide to join together on a ticket. I'm calling you back. Oh, awesome. (laughs) That was Steve Raby, a freelance religion reporter based in Colorado Springs. You can find Steve's stories about Christian pro-family groups at Religion Unplugged and Ministry Watch. We'll put links to his stories on our website, www.interfaithradio.org. When we come back, we look at the religion story behind the investigation into abuses at so-called Indian boarding schools here and in Canada. Stay with us.
Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you. And let's get back to the show. Welcome to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. Umbreen Khan is away this week, and I am your guest host, Kimberly Winston. This week, we're looking at some of the religion stories behind the headlines of recent national news. Emily McFarland Miller is a national correspondent for Religion News Service, where she covers mainline Protestants and Native American spirituality. She's been following the developments of investigations into abuses at residential boarding schools run by the governments of Canada and the United States. Many of the abuses she's written about are criminal, including the 2021 discovery of at least 200 unmarked graves of First Nations children at a residential school in British Columbia. This week, Pope Francis embarked on a cross-Canada trip he called a pilgrimage of penance, to apologize for the Catholic Church's role in running many of these Canadian schools. Recently, the United States Department of the Interior, under the direction of its first-ever Native American secretary, announced the first finding of its own investigation into its church-run boarding schools for Native Americans. As Emily wrote in a recent story, the scope of the Canadian abuses is bad, but it may be worse in the U.S., where there were many more such schools. Before we hear from Emily, a few definitions. Canadians call their institutions residential schools, while Americans call ours boarding schools. And while we call our indigenous peoples Native Americans, Canadians use the terms First Nation, Inuit, and Métis. Emily Miller, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm well. Thank you so much. Emily, you've been covering stories about indigenous people and religion in the U.S. and Canada for how long? Mm, uh, I've been with RNS about five or six years now, so uh, as long as I've been at RNS. So tell us about um, the story that involves the Canadian residential schools that mm-hmm. they sent their indigenous folks to. Mm-hmm. Uh, what did they uncover? Mm-hmm. 
So many of your listeners probably have heard about the confirmation last summer of hundreds of indigenous children's remains that were uh, buried near former residential schools in Canada. Um, this was horrifying and shocking, uh, but for many people, especially for former students or survivors of those schools, I don't think it was surprising. Um, Canada's Truth and Reconciliation Commission released its final report on the history and legacy of the country's residential school system in 2015. And this came after thousands of lawsuits by survivors bringing their experiences to light. Um, the commission reported that these schools were created for the purpose of separating First Nations, Métis, and Inuit children from their families and cultures and indoctrinating them into what it calls, quote, dominant Euro-Christian Canadian society. Uh, between 1883 and as recent as 1996, more than 150,000 students attended uh, 139 residential schools in Canada, and as many as 60% of those schools were run by the Catholic Church. Uh, the, the commission also uh, had documented the deaths of more than 6,000 students as a result of those schools. Um, and they warned at the time that, that there, there likely were more. And they found more, didn't they? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Last summer. And d- so tell me what happened last summer. Um, there were several groups across Canada that um, some had used ground-penetrating equipment, um, and they discovered the remains or indications of unmarked graves uh, near a number of schools. And I believe at last count, there were more than a, more than a, th- a thousand remains of Indigenous children um, suspected around these schools. So as I'm talking to you today, mm-hmm. uh, Pope Francis uh, has arrived in Canada for a mm-hmm. week. Mm-hmm. And as part of this week's plans is he was going to meet with groups of indigenous people. Pope Francis today issued a long-awaited apology to Canada's indigenous people for decades of cultural genocide. The Pope called the abuse indigenous children suffered at schools run by Catholic missionaries, quote, catastrophic. He's referred to this as a penitential pilgrimage um, to apologize to um, the indigenous peoples of Canada for the church's role uh, in these schools. Uh, One of the things that Canada's Truth and Reconciliation Commission did was they issued 94 calls to action. Uh, There were a number of calls to the government, and one of those was for the Pope to come to Canada uh, and issue an apology there. Uh, I believe a number of indigenous people and a delegation that had gone to the Vatican um, earlier this year also extended that invitation to the Pope. Mm. One of the most chilling things you said, the United States had uh, similar boarding schools, mm. but three times as many. Yeah, and that was that was a larger number than the U.S. had had known. The U.S. is really just now beginning sort of similar work and uncovering this history and legacy of uh, the federal Indian boarding school system here in the U.S. You did a story about the United States, the Department of the Interior, which oversees the Bureau of Indian Affairs, the branch of the government that ran these uh, boarding schools. And they issued a report just recently in May. Tell Mm -hmm. me what their report said about the involvement of uh, religious denominations in running these boarding schools. 
Right. So last summer, the Secretary of the Interior, Deb Holland, announced the creation of the Federal Indian Boarding School Initiative. And this was the first volume of their report investigating the the boarding school system here in the U.S. This is the first ever inventory of federally operated boarding schools here in the U.S. Uh, And by its count, the United States operated Uh, 408 boarding schools for Indigenous children across 37 states or then territories between the years 1819 and 1969, particularly pertaining to religious involvement. Half of the schools in the U.S., they say, likely were supported by religious institutions. And this report also quotes from previous documents uh, that describe, quote, an unprecedented delegation of power by the federal government to church bodies. Now, give us an idea of who was sent to these boarding schools, Mm. how they were sent, Mm -hmm. and what happened there. Mm -hmm. In Canada, I know uh, they've documented children as young as three attending these schools. And in the U.S. report, I want to say they phrase it as a a twin policy of assimilating Indigenous children into the dominant society and also um, seizing more land um, belonging to Indigenous people in the U.S. The schools did provide some education. Uh, There's a lot of vocational training, but there's also documented a lot of abuses, physical abuses, emotional abuses, um, some sexual abuses. Uh, And... um, a number of things just separating these children, not only from their families, but also their cultures. They weren't allowed to um, speak their native languages. Their uh, hair was cut. Their traditional clothing was replaced with more European-American-style clothing. Um, Their names might have been changed to more uh, European-American-sounding names. Also, part of it, especially in the the church-run schools, was to... I guess the word is indoctrinate them into Christianity. Am I correct? Uh, I think, yeah, I think religion, you know, Christianity uh, was seen as a part of that dominant society that, you know, along with, um, you know, European sounding names, European, European, uh, European appearing clothing, European ways of life, um, you know, Christianity was seen as a part of that. Now, some U.S. religious denominations are beginning to examine their role in Native American boarding schools. Um, I know the Episcopalians have, the Methodists have. uh, Who else has? What are they discovering? They're just beginning this work. The Episcopalians just approved um, at their denominational meeting earlier this month a fact-finding commission to look into, um, you know, what sort of records they had regarding um, schools uh, that the Episcopal Church may have uh, run or operated or supported. Um, A number of denominations also um, have pledged their support for uh, legislation for the U.S. to establish a truth and healing commission like the truth and reconciliation commission that uh canada had um a number of these denominations uh issued repudiations for the doctrine of discovery um Mm. and a number of them see this as 
uh, a through line from the doctrine of discovery to these schools. Um, and what what is the doctrine of discovery? Explain that for our listeners who may not know. This is the theological justification for the European explorers coming to the U.S. to be able to claim lands already belonging to other peoples as their own. In, I want to say, about 2009, a number of denominations uh, you know, responded to calls from indigenous peoples here in the U.S. to repudiate this and um, to follow those words with actions. And so... Mm. Um, the United Methodist Church issued an entire report researching their role in um, the Sand Creek massacre, and so I think uh, a lot of these a lot of these denominations now are um, doing similar work uh, with the boarding schools as well, and what role they played in that. Tell me about the Secretary of the Interior, Deb mm-hmm. Holland. Mm-hmm. What has been the impact of having a Native American as Secretary of the Interior? So Secretary Holland is a member of the Pueblo of Laguna and the first Native American to serve as a cabinet secretary. Um, And this is a great question that I would love to put to leaders of indigenous nations across the United States. But I think, I mean, to me, one big impact is the creation of this federal Indian boarding school initiative. Um, And she just made the first stop on a nationwide listening tour to give boarding school survivors and their descendants a platform to share their stories. It's really similar to what Canada did um, with its Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Uh, So it'll it'll be interesting to see um, if the U.S. follows uh, along the same same lines, doing the same things that uh, Canada has done. From your position as someone who covers Native American spirituality, how important do you think it is to the healing process for Native Americans in this country, First Nations people in Canada, to have these religious denominations examine their role in these these schools and apologize for their role in trying to eradicate these cultures? Is there real healing benefit to come out of this? A theme that has emerged as I've put this question to um, people that I've interviewed is that telling the truth is an important first step on the road to healing. Um, So being able to uncover the records that exist, being able to tell these stories and hear these stories, um, being able to share what it is that happened um, is the first step on a long journey toward healing um, and toward um, conciliation or reconciliation. Mm. So, Emily, last fall, you attended a a service in a Catholic church in Chicago, where you're based, um, that was for the Day of Remembrance that um, Canadians were observing for children who had been in the schools there. What do you think the impact of any of these denominational reports, any denominational apologies, any denominational um, acknowledgement of their role 
in what has been described as a genocide. What kind of impact do you think that that will have just on the average uh, Presbyterian, the average Methodist, the average Lutheran, the average Catholic in the pew whose churches were involved in those schools? I think certainly it's a deeper knowledge and awareness of this huge part of U.S. history. One of the leaders that I spoke to at that service, she said, you know, it's important. This was, this service was important because she said Native people can't heal if nobody knows the truth. And uh, people were surprised by the confirmations of these unmarked graves last summer. People are surprised to learn about this history um, of boarding schools here in the U.S. Um, and so I think one big thing that may come from this is just more people becoming aware of this part of U.S. history. Hopefully this is the first step toward healing for a number of Indigenous people in the U.S. That was Emily McFarland Miller, a national correspondent for Religion News Service. You can find her stories about the involvement of religious groups in Native American boarding schools at www.religionnews.com. And we'll link to them on our website, www.interfaithradio.org. When we come back, we'll look at an ancient faith staging a comeback from dwindling numbers. Stay with us. Welcome to Inspired. I'm your host this week, Kimberly Winston, keeping the seat warm for Umbreen Khan. This week, we're looking at some of the religion stories behind the headlines in politics and beyond. These are generally not feel-good stories, but I don't want to leave you on a down note. So I hope you'll catch the enthusiasm and sense of joy in my next guest's voice as he describes reporting on Zoroastrians, a religious group whose ancient faith has influenced Christianity and Islam. David Crary has been a reporter for the Associated Press since the 1970s, but he's only recently moved to the religion desk. There, he oversees a team of reporters who cover religion around the world. I reached him at his home in Brooklyn, where he told me about covering the Zoroastrian World Conference, which took place earlier this summer in New York. So let's just start with the basics. Tell me, who are the Zoroastrians and what do they believe? Yeah, this was a real learning curve for me. I'd seen the word. I knew a little bit about what part of the world they started. Hardly anything else. And I realized if that was the case for me, it's probably the case for an awful lot of people around the world. Oh, yeah, I've seen that name, but what what are they? So it was fun to learn. One of the most ancient faiths uh, of all, many, many thousands of years old, older than Islam, older than Christianity, certainly. The real details of its founding are kind of murky. It's like, was it this century or that century? There are no written records from the time. A lot of the stuff was passed down orally. But the common denominator is there was a prophet variously known as Zoroaster or Zarathustra, 
this prophet was preaching some of the basic tenets that got picked up by these other major, bigger faiths about this kind of perennial conflict between good and evil, the need to uh, do good works, to uh, think about others, etc., etc. Very foundational things. They seem kind of old hat and obvious now, but at the time that uh, Zarathustra or Zoroaster was preaching, they weren't for given things they weren't they weren't taken for granted so he, he a lot of scholars believe he was an effective pioneer theologically what are some of their key beliefs well that's that's a good question what distinguishes them is that they are arguably the oldest monotheistic religions mm. so they have one god like islam and christianity and judaism there are older kind of indigenous religions that were um polytheist more than one god but Zoroastrians absolutely are monotheists, and they see their God as being in a perpetual conflict with an actual, uh, the equivalent of a devil, the, the evil spirit, and they're constantly in conflict. Uh, they believe that the benign God generally prevails, but that the conflict never goes away. So I guess it's sort of like heaven and hell for some Christians who believe in those things. Hell never disappears. It's always there, similar with the Zoroastrians. They very much believe in the spirit of doing well for oneself. Success, even gaining wealth is good, but if you gain wealth, you should share it with others. So that goes back ancient days of this faith, and yet it's still a, an admirable concept now. And, and the modern-day Zoroastrians are known for philanthropy, and civic engagement. They take a lot of pride in that. In the piece, you say there are only about 125,000 Zoroastrians worldwide. Later religions that were influenced by Zoroastrianism are magnitudes larger. Why are there so few Zoroastrians? Yeah, that, that fascinated me to have that question posed and then equally fascinating that there are a couple of very specific answers to that. Perhaps most importantly, when the um, Zoroastrians of ancient days fled from Iran, and the reason they fled from Iran is it was taken over by fairly uh, energetic, zealous Muslims, Arab invaders who took over Iran, and they were not very tolerant of other religions. So a lot of Zoroastrians, not all of them, but a lot fled from Iran and moved to India, which for centuries has been the largest population of this faith. When they got to India in order to try to be good neighbors and not be persecuted again, they set a policy on their own, as I understand, we will not convert. We won't convert anybody. And they've stuck to that policy or tradition ever since, even in other parts of the world. So it's kind of fascinating that they aren't trying to grow their numbers through conversion. They never did it. They still don't. So that's one reason. And then the other reason, sort of more present day, is a lot of uh, devout Zoroastrians don't believe in even bringing into their face, say, someone who married a Zoroastrian. That mm. spouse, that spouse, and even their children, by fundamentalist viewpoints in this faith, they don't really count. So in other words, the only children who would count would have both parents be Zoroastrian. And these days in the uh, Western communities of Zoroastrian, in the US and Canada, Australia, there are a lot of mixed marriages. So they don't get counted as, as increasing the number. So those two reasons put together and 
answer the question. And they're worried. They're all worried about the demographics. They're, they're not pleased with it. So the impetus for this story was that New York was hosting the World Zoroastrian Conference. Tell me what that is. They try to have this global meeting every four years. Um, this is not through the centuries, but through recent decades. And because there's such a diaspora of Zoroastrians, they find it helpful and uh, sociable to try to bring delegates from literally all over the globe. I mean, we're talking Australia, New Zealand, Singapore, uh, the Middle East, uh, Canada, U.S., Western Europe. So they really are, are far flung. And maybe a thousand or fifteen hundred delegates will show up in one place. And this year, it was New York City, the first one in the U.S. for uh, twenty years. And uh, they have very uh, a diverse agenda for young people, for women, for entrepreneurs. You know, it was not all theology. Uh, I was fascinated by the, the diversity of the agenda. Uh, very upbeat, you know, but they were tackling head on their demographic problem. What do we do to keep ourselves uh, viable? Hmm. One of the things you say in the story is the future is in the hands of young Zoroastrians. What are some of the challenges that young Zoroastrians face? Well, I think there are some Zoroastrians in general, but probably a disproportionately larger number of young Zoroastrians who would be interested in loosening the uh, intermarriage thing. That's not like an absolute no-no to discuss in different communities around the world. There are different approaches to that issue. So I think among Zoroastrians who want to continue thriving, uh, there's a fair bit of interest in loosening that thing. So that would be one Thing. I think the other is that there are um, a lot of young people who kind of have lost touch with the faith and yet are really curious about it. Uh, I learned about a program where young Zoroastrians are taken on a sort of tour of their regions of India. It's a little bit like the program for uh, U.S. Jews, the so-called birthright program, where they go to Israel and learn about Judaism. And there seems to be a lot of interest in that. They aren't necessarily going to become devout Zoroastrians immediately, but they want to learn more about where this faith came from or where their ancestors came from. So maybe that's also a reason for some optimism is, is that kind of mindset spreads. What kind of organizational hierarchy do they have? Like, you know, Catholics have the Pope and on down and um, the United Methodists have a board and a this and a that. What do Zoroastrians have? Do they have a single governing body? My understanding is it's a very decentralized religion, a little bit like some of the uh, Orthodox denominations where there's a geographic association, whether it's Canada or the U.S. or Singapore, that kind of runs Zoroastrian affairs in that region. But there definitely is nothing equivalent to uh, the Pope or the Archbishop of Canterbury at all. So the young folks may be able to have some control over the intermarriage issue or any other issues? That is correct, Kimberly. It would be, it, it would be done on a regional basis. A community in Singapore or Canada would decide, you know what, we're going to approach this differently. And there's no higher up uh, who can say, no, you, you can't do that the way the Pope could try to do. In the story, you cite the U.S., Britain and Australia as places where the Zoroastrians are growing in numbers. And part of that has to do with just general immigration patterns. But what else contributes to that growth of Zoroastrianism in those countries? 
I think it's because they're counting um, some of these uh, offspring of mixed marriages. Canada is mm. also in that category. So there's a different approach uh, there. So the two factors, as you mentioned, immigration. So there'd be people coming from South Asia, for example, to Canada or to California, the big South Asian communities in those two North American countries. So the immigration, and then when they get to these new countries, they loosen up their approach to welcoming uh, people from mixed marriages. One more factor, I guess, because a lot of these families are more prosperous here in the States, they may feel uh, more comfortable having their more kids. Even if it's an all Zoroastrian marriage, it makes a difference, obviously, if, if you have one or two kids or four or five. And I think there's a, a sense that these are larger families now in some of these new communities. When I called you to ask you to be on the show, um, you said you were really glad that you did this story on the Zoroastrians. Tell me why. You know, that's a pretty easy answer. I mean, one of the things I've loved about being a journalist for a long time is the opportunity to learn about stuff you didn't know before as part of the job. You do it so that you can write a thoughtful, informed story. This one was particularly fun for me because I felt like I should have known more about Zoroastrianism than I did. I realized I knew you know, a smidgen, almost nothing. And it was really fun in the space of 10 days to learn a lot for someone, an, an outsider, talk to some people. I sent them links to my story uh, when it ran, and I was so thrilled that they said, this is a, a wonderful story. So it was very satisfying to learn on the fly, talk to the right people, read the right kind of summaries, and then come out with a story that they appreciated and thought was well done. So it was a fun project and it worked out well. That was my guest, David Crary, a religion reporter with the Associated Press. If you're interested in finding out more about David and our other guests, Steve Raby and Emily McFarlane Miller, head over to this episode's page on our website at www.interfaithradio.org. While you are there, you can also learn about us, read the show notes, sign up for our newsletter, and explore the archives. You can find our podcast on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, or by searching Interfaith Voices in the podcatcher of your choice. And you can help us out by leaving a rating and a review. It helps others find us. This week's episode was produced by me, Kimberly Winston, Richa Karmakar, Kevin McCarthy, and Umbreen Khan. Thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler, for her vision, and MC Yogi for our theme music. Additional music by Blue Dot Sessions and Audio Binger. Inspired is a production of Interfaith Voices. We rely on the generous support of our listeners to bring you this show. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next week.